more than a pleasure to have back somebody that we know on the program, we love on the program, we always learn from, and that is Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel Layton is founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. It's a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company a few years ago in 2010, but prior to that, he was in the U.S. Air Force, and he served there for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attained the rank of colonel. And he is now a military analyst for CNN. More than a pleasure to have back with us Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel Layton, good afternoon. And welcome back. Always good to have you with us, sir. Thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure always to be with you. Uh, first of all, I heard a little rumor today, and this is not what we're talking about, but that Donald Trump was possibly looking at Sarah Palin to head up the VA. Um, you are a veteran, sir. Would you feel more comfortable with somebody who's actually served in the military and is a veteran themselves, um, you know, heading up such an organization, if you feel comfortable answering that? Oh, I certainly feel comfortable answering that, and the answer is yes. I would definitely prefer a veteran, or at least somebody who understood health care and veterans' health care issues, perhaps even a combat veteran, somebody who understands the unique needs of combat veterans. Uh, That would be a better choice. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) Well, I thought you were going to say that, but I just wanted to check. Just double-checking that I can read your mind, Colonel. (laughs) Donald, there's a, there are many crises uh, throughout the Middle East, and you and I have talked upon and touched upon a many of those. I mean, there are civil wars, there are proxy wars, there are energy wars, there's a war on ISIS, there's a war on everybody else from ISIS. And in January, Donald Trump, the president-elect, will take office, and these are just some of the numerous challenges that he will face uh, in the Middle East. Now, CNN, where you're a military analyst, um, has a uh, Connect the World, and they explored the key challenges that a Wait, President-elect Trump in this region, which is quite turbulent. So let's break it down and take a look at them uh, one by one. Uh, first, let's go to Syria. Um, in Syria, there is uh, a lot going on. There is a war. There are millions of Syrians that are suffering. There have been a civil war there for at least five years. And one of the bloodiest wars since World War II, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed over the past five years. Millions of people have been displaced. Currently, the United States is supporting some rebel groups fighting to oust Syria's President Bashar al-Assad. And any change to that will be vehemently contested by Arab and European allies. They want him out. Trump has said he would rather focus on fighting extremist groups like ISIS, which Russia claims to be doing, in what seems to be in tune with Assad, whose regime is backed by not just Russia, but Iran as well, that axis of evil, uh, at least uh, from those on the right. Uh, so, so let's talk about this. What, if you were advising Donald Trump on what to do in Syria, what would you tell him to do? And then what do you think he really is going to do? And how is that going to play out uh, in, in that region, especially with our allies well, I think you know, if I were to advise Donald Trump, I would say that uh, the issue with Syria is a very complicated one because of those players that you mentioned. You've got the Syrian regime, the Assad regime. You've got Iran, like you said. You've got the different factions, some of whom we support. You've got uh, states from uh, the Arab Gulf, uh, everything from Saudi Arabia and Qatar on one side, and even the Israelis are involved to some extent in in uh, some of these in these issues. And you have Hezbollah and Hamas and, and others that are, uh, you know, all part of this mix. So Syria is, uh, because it is so 
complicated. I'd be very, very careful. You know, I would say that it might, it would definitely be a good idea to talk to the Russians about uh, certain very specific things, but be very careful with them because what the Russians want to do is they want to establish Syria as a base, or I should say reestablish Syria as a base for their operations. They see it as a jumping off point to exercise influence in the Middle East, just like they used to do back in the Cold War days. Uh, Syria served as a host for uh, for a lot of Soviet uh, bases and uh, equipment, as well as uh, some training efforts. Uh, so the Syrian military and the Russian-slash-Soviet military have a history that goes back a long, long way. Uh, and that's something you're not going to overturn. Uh, but by the same token, what uh, Mr. Trump would also have to do is be very uh, careful on how he aligns the United States within uh, within that whole Syrian mess. Uh, you pointed out the the issue with the European Union and uh, their reaction to the Assad regime, and uh, we you know there is something to the idea of having a moral high ground in foreign policy. A lot of people don't look at it necessarily that way, uh, but uh, the the real answer is that. Uh, you cannot be seen to support somebody like the Assad regime. And, of course, the Russians are supporting the Assad regime, as are the Iranians. So that complicates issues. And it, uh, you know, it is uh, good to, uh, you know, in some respects, to go in and take care of one enemy and then take care of the other enemy. But uh, in this particular case, we may find ourselves with basically little choice in that in that area. We may have to do it uh, basically like that, but it is a very bad situation to be in because neither side that we would support, whether it would be ISIS, which we of course would have would never support, or the Assad regime, um, they both have issues that put them in basically the the uh, box of the war criminal. And the fact that they are war criminals uh, makes any relationship with them uh, not only politically difficult, uh, but morally difficult as well. Uh, yeah, no question about that. Um, and with everything that Trump has kind of forecasted, uh, do you think, you know, there's one thing for a president or president-elect to say what they want to do, is this going to have the backing of those in Congress, even Republicans? But then again, what about the backing of the Pentagon? He will be commander-in-chief, but the Pentagon can also say, I don't think that's a good idea, sir. That's true, they can. And, uh, you know, what they will do, of course, Trump famously said that he knows more about ISIS than the generals do. Uh, it will be interesting to see how, how that manifests itself, not only in policy decisions, but also in the relationship between the White House and and the Pentagon once he does uh, uh, become the president. But, uh, yeah, well, you're right. The, uh, the Pentagon and Congress can put up roadblocks. Uh, Senator McCain, for example, on the Republican side, is definitely... Uh, going to be watching what is happening in Syria. He's been a staunch advocate of doing something against the Assad regime. There have been uh, several Democratic senators and, and congressmen who've also uh, voiced a great deal of concern. Right. And, uh, and Hold that thought, Colonel. Hold that thought. Sorry, I thought I was going to get you out before the uh, break. We'll be back to hear the rest of that and talk more about other regions in the Middle East and what Trump should do and his ideas of what it could lead to. We'll be back. Hey there, this is Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Happy Wednesday. And I want to tell you that Geico has been saving people money for over 75 years. 
We continue with Colonel Cedric Layton here on the program. He is a CNN military analyst in 26 years. He worked uh, in the military. He is a veteran, and he has uh, certainly extensive background with regard to military action, and there's a lot of that going on in the Middle East. Colonel Layton, thank you for holding. Welcome back. And I, I apologize for interrupting. Um, you were um, talking about Syria, and I had asked you when you were in the middle of that answer uh, whether or not you know the Pentagon might go along with what the new commander in chief uh, would propose, or will they you know put their hand up and say, "Wait a minute, sir," because like you said, he claims to know more than the generals, uh, but that bravado is not going to work with real generals behind closed doors in that situation room. Well, that's right, Leslie. And uh, the generals are going to tell him, you know, what their frank assessment is. Uh, the military has uh, now spent some time not only in Iraq, but also now in Syria. Uh, they know that lay of the land pretty well. Uh, they also know the challenges that are being opposed uh, to, to any American presence in that area by uh, not only ISIS, but also in the case of Syria by the Assad regime and its forces. So the generals will give uh, Mr. Trump a very clear idea of what's going on, I, what it, it's then going to be up to him to decide exactly how far he wants to go. They will point out the risks. Uh, they will point out the possible benefits of a particular course of action. And usually what they'll do is they'll present him with about three different courses of action for a particular problem, and then uh, they will make a recommendation on which course to follow. And uh, nine times out of ten in the past, the president of whichever party has actually taken that recommendation. Uh, but it really remains to be seen what, uh, what Donald Trump will do in a case like this. We have an alliance with Saudi Arabia. It's an uneasy alliance. The Saudi King Salman bin Abdulaziz was one of the first Arab leaders actually to congratulate Trump. Uh, but are these two people, this king and this president-elect, able to work together to repair the ties between the United States and the Saudis? It now, people say, is plunged to a new low. Uh, Saudi uh, has concerns about the Iran nuclear deal and the passing of legislation that would allow families of the 9-11 victims uh, to take uh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, uh, to court. Um, is this alliance going to be worse, would you say, uh, with Donald Trump as president? Well, it would certainly tax any diplomat's uh, abilities to smooth over what has, you know, what has happened in the relationship between the United States and uh, and Saudi Arabia over the last, uh, you know, ten, fifteen years. So, in this case, it's possible, certainly, that uh, Donald Trump and uh, his uh, very negative view of the Iran deal. I think that will play very well in Riyadh. Uh, it will play very well with King Salman. Uh, and I think that may have been the basis for the, one of the basis for the king actually congratulating Trump so early uh, after after uh, Trump's electoral victory. Um, the way in which uh, this can evolve, of course, it could go back to uh, you know being very big uh, challenge and uh, the fact that you know quite frankly it would be difficult for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to see things off the same sheet of music. But uh, the other thing that can happen, of course, is that. Because Trump has all these business interests in the Middle East, some of which are in Saudi Arabia, uh, that may serve to uh, to benefit uh, uh, the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. I think what the Saudis are going to do is they're going to wait and see how the United States is going to approach Iran, and if 
they think that uh, Trump is following his uh, instinct and his uh, rhetoric on the campaign trail, uh, that uh, they will use that as an opportunity to uh, really leverage their power and regain power uh, against uh, Iran. Uh, Basically, what the Saudis are going to be doing is they're going to be uh, trying to establish themselves as the the big power broker in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf region. Uh, And the Iranians are certainly challenging them in that area, not only through a possible nuclear weapon, but also the very agreement that was reached to prevent the development of that nuclear weapon for 15 years or so. Uh, That also plays into Iran's hands uh, and makes them a more influential or potentially more influential uh, power in the Middle East. Uh, So the Saudis are going to look for every American effort that they can uh, put their eyes on, uh, and they they will see that, you know, if there are American efforts to contain Iran, they will support those efforts. If, on the other hand, the U.S. is seen as a country that is not uh, supporting a strong line to, uh, against Iran, they will uh, then withdraw much of their support from the U.S., or they will at least try to balance that support with support from other players to include possibly Russia. Wow. Uh, so, so much to think about with just that alone. Uh, I had mentioned the Iran nuclear deal, and of course there is an Iranian nuclear crisis, if you will. The Iran nuclear deal was one of the main foreign policy achievements of uh, President Obama. And culminating after years of exhaustive diplomacy, it curtailed the country's nuclear program. It brought it back into the fold of the international community. And I think a lot of people forget the United States is one of half of a dozen countries uh, that have signed on for this. We're not alone in this. Um, All of that could unravel, obviously, if uh, Donald Trump as president makes good on his promise, which is to rip that deal apart. And what options does he have to undermine the deal and what impact would it have on Iran, Colonel? So the ability of Trump to actually undermine that deal or withdraw from that deal is uh, it's certainly questionable because of all the different uh, players that you mentioned, the European Union, uh, the fact that Russia is involved, China. Uh, basically, we've got six major players involved in this deal, uh, plus the United States and Iran. And that is uh, going to be a significant weight on any effort uh, to modify the deal or to do anything that uh, that would uh, change any of the parameters of that deal. So, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, what, what the way Donald Trump was talking about this, it was the worst thing that ever happened uh, in U.S. foreign policy history. Um, that's not necessarily the case, because what it could also do is it could, number one, be an opening to Iran, and it could uh, mitigate uh, some of their behavior. We haven't seen that many efforts by Iran uh, to uh, conduct terrorist operations in various parts of the world, just as an example. Uh, And we've also seen a lot of efforts uh, on the part of uh, Iran on the commercial side to actually normalize commercial relations with the rest of the world. Uh, So obviously the Iranians want this for the money. Uh, They want to be able to uh, not only uh, create a, a better life for their people, at least within certain limits, but they also want to be able to 
benefit from it in in a way that would strengthen the regime that currently exists there. So it's a kind of a two-edged sword. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a, you know an effort to uh, destabilize uh, the deal and then ultimately destabilize Iran, uh, that could play into the hands of Iranian hardliners, which would mean that Iran would go toward the development of a nuclear bomb much more quickly wow. uh, than would otherwise be the case. Let's go from Iran to Iraq. There certainly still is so much unrest in Iraq. We hear about more and more violence. Many Iraqis uh, could barely contain their joy a decade ago. That's when Saddam Hussein was overthrown. But they didn't realize the years of misery and suffering that would follow and have over the past decade. Uh, following the invasion by the United States um, of Iraq in 2003, violence erupted across Iraq. Extremists found a place in the war-ridden territories and it has made it impossible for American troops to pull out. The U.S. is now supporting Iraqi forces that are battling ISIS in the strategic city of Mosul, and we've talked about that before here, Colonel. And uh, with the president-elect talking about deploying tens of thousands back into Iraq, well, now they think the withdrawal is set to take way longer than what the American people not only expected, were initially promised as well. Um you know, and uh, I want to speak to this, but also the idea that, you know, it would seem based on rhetoric that President-elect Trump, whether it's in Syria or in Iraq, just wants to bomb the blankety blank out of ISIS. Is that even a, a strategy that should be considered? Well, it's certainly good to go after your enemy, but the problem that you have with uh, the way in which uh, Donald Trump has spoken about this, uh, it, it, this is not World War II, and this is not a, we're not dealing with a nation state that has uh, the kind of infrastructure that, let's say, Nazi Germany or Japan had uh, during World War II. So it's a completely different animal. ISIS is amorphous. ISIS moves around. Uh, you know, when ISIS uh, it has to evacuate. Once they evacuate Mosul, uh, they'll obviously move over to Raqqa if they can hold that for a while. Once that is gone, uh, the remnants will move uh, probably to Libya. Uh, there will be a lot of different things that will happen, and it, because it doesn't have the infrastructure that or the, the set infrastructure, I guess would probably be the better way to put it, uh, that a nation state, a normal nation state, would have. It becomes a lot difficult, a lot more difficult to do that kind of a, a, in essence, a, a, either a major bombing campaign or a carpet bombing campaign. Um, the other part of it is, is that that actually violates the rules of war. And uh, given new technologies and the use of precision-guided munitions, uh, there is a rule of war that basically says that you shall only use force that is proportional to what you need to do from a military perspective. In other words, if somebody attacks you in a certain way, uh, you let's say they use uh, you know, a Paris-style attack or something like that, um, the normal response would not be to use a nuke against them, as just as an example. Not that Trump has advocated that, but uh, it is certainly something that uh, you know, he, he could be tempted to do, perhaps. But it would be very, uh, a very bad uh, thing to do, not only from a legal standpoint, but also from a moral standpoint. So the better way to go after ISIS uh, would basically be with a proportional response. You want to do, in essence, what the Obama administration is beginning to do in both Iraq and in Syria when it comes to ISIS. They're using local forces. Uh, they are, when they can, 
And when they have the intelligence, they're decapitating ISIS leaders. Uh, they're taking them out, uh, not literally decapitating them, but they're figuratively speaking, decapitating them. And what that means is you're taking out the leadership when and where they can be found. Uh, that is usually a much more effective strategy uh, from a counterterrorism perspective than uh, a simple strategy of carpet bombing or fire bombing or doing anything like that. That that kind of uh, a military use of military force would be not only disproportionate, uh, but also would be counterproductive uh, from a public relations standpoint. And the big one that nobody seems to be able to solve. No American president can ignore it and can't solve it, and that's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's been going on for decades. The past two years, uh, we've seen a wave of stabbings by Palestinians, as well as a shooting, uh, uh, vehicular attacks, um, all of them coming against a backdrop of Israel's expansion of the settlements, which they continue, which I do not think is wise, and more broadly of what many Palestinians view as unending occupation by Israel of these people within a land that they, you know, say, hey, you know, we were here first or just, you know, give us this little corner. Um, How can President-elect Trump attempt to find a solution to this complex conflict? His predecessors have failed. What he could do remains to be seen. Some people say that he's kind of in bed with Bibi, uh, you know, uh, Netanyahu, and that will turn his head uh, to uh, further building of an expansion of those settlements that BB continues. Well, I certainly agree with you that uh, you know pursuing settlements in the way that Israel is is doing is is counterproductive to uh, to peace. I uh, you know I understand that there uh, is a lot of sentiment, a lot of emotion attached to to that issue, uh, but uh, you have to ask yourself the question: you know, do you want um, does Israel want to live in peace with its neighbors, or do they want to live in a state of perpetual war? If the answer is that they want to live in peace, then they have to start taking steps to actually do that. Uh, and you, we find that they're, you know, that, you know, with the expansion of the settlements and, you know, with other policies that uh, have been in place for some time with the Israelis, uh, especially with their occupation of Palestinian territories, uh, a lot of it seems to be counterproductive. On the other hand, you can understand the security issues that the Israelis face, uh, and those, uh, those issues are uh, very, you know, certainly very serious and basically border on the existential. So it's a, a, the one thing that would have to happen is that the Palestinians would have to guarantee Israel's right to, to exist. They have done so in a piecemeal fashion with previous agreements, uh, but they haven't really executed in that way. And, and they uh, there's always talk about regressing in that area. So they'd have to make an ironclad guarantee uh, for Israel's security. Uh, the Israelis would also have to guarantee Palestinian security. Uh, they would have to have basically a bunch of commercial relationships. There's a lot of economic uh, relations that already occur uh, between uh, the two peoples. Uh, they would have to be formalized in, in a way that uh, you know would allow for not only legal movement, but also a, a more streamlined movement of goods and services across uh, their common border. And that border would have to be established, and both sides would have to give and take. Uh, and that would be certainly a long and protracted process. 
and I don't um, I don't know if Donald Trump has the patience for that. I know he's he's basically said that he would like uh, for there to be peace in in the Middle East, and he would like to tackle that issue. Uh, if he can do it, then of course it would be something that would be very very different from any of his of his predecessors. Uh, but uh, I think that the odds of success are are at best uh, very distant, and uh, I think that uh, uh, they're less than, uh, certainly less than 50-50 at this point. Uh, wonderful conversation. I, I, you know, I just got a nice um, class there, Colonel, without having to pay the tuition. Thank you. And so did our listeners. Uh, Colonel, Cedric, <laughs> Colonel Cedric Layton, who I just adore, I have great admiration and respect for, and has extreme uh, knowledge, uh, personal experience, and just so knowledgeable on this issue. Thank you, Colonel. Colonel Cedric That's Layton can be, thank you. Uh, can be followed on Twitter at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. His website is Cedric Layton.com. Check it out.